Welcome to the Purdue Commercial Agcast, the Purdue University Center for Commercial Agriculture's podcast featuring farm management news and information. I'm your host today, Jim Mintert, Director of the Purdue Center for Commercial Agriculture. And joining me today is Michael Langemeyer, Professor of Ag Economics here at Purdue. And today we're going to talk about the corn and soybean outlook in light of USDA's release of the September crop production report and updated world ag supply and demand estimates, both of which came out on September 11th. And Michael, as you look at the data, um, you know, the, the big question mark coming to this report was what USDA was going to say about uh, corn and soybean yields, particularly in light of what happened with respect to the storms that came through Iowa and, and a little bit of the Eastern Corn Belt, um, just about the time that the August crop production report was released. And they reduced the corn yield by almost three bushels to the acre, which was uh, probably, at least from my own perspective, maybe on the high end of what I thought was likely. I think it actually turned out to be maybe in line with trade expectations, but they did pull that yield number down to 178.5, and they were up around 181 um, coming into the report. So that was significant. And I think you took a look at the states where they reduced yields and maybe yeah, the, the biggest the biggest reduction occurred in Iowa, as you'd expect. There was also a relatively large reduction in Kansas. There's been some uh, there's been some weather issues in, in, in the western corn belt, uh, particularly Kansas, and so they and so the Kansas yields also dropped quite a bit. But just to put this in perspective, looking at that U.S. yield, it's still above trend and it still would be a record. Well, how can that possibly be, uh, given the given the the uh, problems we're seeing? Uh, with some dry spots and, and also the, the storm in Iowa. Well, when you look at Minnesota and, and Wisconsin and even Michigan, they're expecting record corn yields. Also South Dakota. And so, and so despite the fact that we do have some states uh, where the yield was reduced quite a bit, uh, there's some states that look like they're going to have very good corn crops. Yeah, I think, you know, if you look back at what's taking place, clearly the storm had an impact, especially with respect to pulling down the numbers in Iowa. But also, if you look at the crop condition ratings, uh, starting about the time of that August report release, those crop condition ratings started to fall uh, because of dry weather. And if you look at the drought map for Iowa, clearly uh, dry weather's had some impact. You mentioned Kansas. There's been a number of states that have been impacted by declining crop conditions, and that was probably going to be a little bigger deal with respect to soybeans. We'll talk about that later. But really, it was those combination, dry weather hitting a chunk of the Corn Belt, combined with the impact of the storm, and that gave us the lower yield number. Then as you look at uh, the production numbers, uh, this did pull the USDA's estimate of the 2020 corn crop down below 15 billion bushels. Now they also, I think in response to the storm damage, pulled back a little bit on harvest acreage. Now, harvested acreage, their expectation for the number of acres that'll be harvested, but then combine that with the reduction in yield that pulled the production estimate for the U.S. for 2020 down to 14.9 billion bushels. We've been above 15 billion bushels all year, so you know, dropping below 15 is maybe a little bit of a psychological move. But again, kind of coming back to your point, that is the second largest corn crop on record. The largest was in 2016 at 15.15 billion bushels. 14.9 is larger than last year. No big surprise there, given the problems we had in 2019, but it's larger than 2018, larger than 2017 as well. So it's still a pretty big corn crop, just not as big as we were expecting uh, roughly a month ago. And if you look at the trade reaction, you know, this month's 
uh, production report was probably pretty much in line with what the trade was expecting prior to the report's release. I think, uh, you know, if you look at expectations there, the range was, I think, on the low end. There were some people expecting corn production to be a little above 14.7 billion bushels. On the high end, there were some folks forecasting up around 15.1. USDA's estimate came in pretty much right in the middle of those trade estimates coming into the report. And then, um, you know, you start looking at the usage categories on the demand side, looking at that World uh, Ag Supply Demand Estimates report that uh, USDA released. Um, they're a little less optimistic about ethanol usage than a month earlier, but they're still projecting some recovery. So to put that in perspective, USDA is forecasting the bushels of corn going into ethanol production in the 2020 crop year to rise to 5.1 billion bushels. That compares to their current estimate of what happened in the 2019 crop year, which was 4.86 billion bushels. So I think the significant thing is that they're projecting some recovery there, right? Uh, some some improvement relative to what we saw in 2019. Yeah, that's definitely the case. And and you've looked at this a little closer, uh, looking at uh, uh, comparisons to earlier this year. I think that's quite interesting. Yeah, so if you look at ethanol production relative to early January, and that's what we did, is we just looked at weekly ethanol production values uh, from the Energy Information Agency and looked at the percent change relative to how much ethanol we were producing in early January. And no big surprise in late April, early May, we were running about 50% below where we were in early January. And then ever since then, there's been some recovery. But as you think about it and look at the data, starting in about the middle of July going forward, we've kind of stagnated. So pretty consistently going back to early July, those production numbers have been running 15 to maybe 17% below where they were in early January. I think the most recent data was actually 14% in early September. So it looks like we've kind of stagnated in terms of recovery. It was certainly much, much better than what we were looking at in late April and early May. But as I look ahead to the rest of this year, uh, the rest of this calendar year, and maybe the early part of, of 2021, it's kind of hard to get too optimistic about ethanol production numbers rising above what they've been recently. And so that still makes me a little skittish about whether or not we're going to use as many bushels of corn to produce ethanol as what USDA is forecasting. Clearly, they're more optimistic about the latter stages of 2021. Uh, the calendar year of 2021 in terms of economic recovery and that boosting ethanol demand. And that, that could happen, but it remains to be seen. It's certainly not likely to happen this fall. Um, the other big usage category that I think uh, people are wondering about is exports. USDA is very optimistic about a recovery in export values. Uh, they're projecting a 32% increase in exports for the 2020 corn crop that's 100 million bushels higher than what they were forecasting in August. And uh, that was maybe a little bit of a surprise. I guess we, we knew coming in that USDA was anticipating some recovery in, in exports, but I wasn't necessarily expecting that 100 million bushel increase. Were you, Michael? No, I wasn't either. And, and this puts us not that far away from, from 2017, where we had uh, 2.44 billion uh, bushels exported. And so we're, we're getting pretty close to that 2017 export number. 
Yeah, so to put that in perspective, you know, last year, uh, the 2019 crop, 1.77 billion bushels exported. They're forecasting 2.33 billion bushels for the 2020 crop year. And as you pointed out, um, that's above the 19 level. It's also above what we exported in 2018 and roughly 100 million bushels below where we were in 2017. Um, so it's a big number and it, it does indicate some optimism. It indicates, I think, some optimism about a recovery in the world economy uh, with respect to consumer incomes and demand for meat. And obviously a chunk of that's being driven by expectations for a strong recovery in China uh, as China attempts to rebuild its livestock herds, especially the pork production numbers. Well, you know, when I work through the balance sheet, Michael, I always try to get as quickly as I can, I wanna get down to what the ending stocks number is. And then the way I like to look at that is ending stocks as a percentage of total usage. And that allows us to kind of scale things in a way that, that we can look at the historical data in a more meaningful way. And, you know, they did, they did tighten. Uh, a month ago, USDA was projecting ending stocks as a percentage of usage to be about 19%. On this report, came in at 17%. So I think that's, you know, that's pretty optimistic. That's, that's, uh, it still leaves us above where we were just a few years ago. You know, the 16 crop, the 17 crop, the 18 crop. We were running between 14 and 16% of usage, so we're still above that, but it's good news compared to what the expectations were a month ago. And it certainly pr probably puts a limit on how high corn prices can go from where we're currently at. Uh, as long as that carryover is that 17, you know, that's around that 17%, you wouldn't expect corn prices to be too much above 350 uh, next marketing year. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, if you want to get optimistic about corn prices, you're really going to have to get optimistic about uh, maybe a, a bigger reduction in production than what USDA projected on the September report. And that's a possibility when combines start to roll. Uh, the second thing you'd probably have to be a little optimistic about is, is maybe a little more optimistic than they are about ethanol production. I already think they are relatively optimistic, but uh, that would be one uh, reason for that number to tighten even more. And then the last one would be exports, and they're very optimistic about exports, I think, relative to what's been taking place in the recent past. So uh, those are really the three hinge points for that forecast. And, um, you know, if there was one of those that I thought might happen, more, maybe a little more likely than the other, probably the one that's maybe a little more likely might be uh, on the yield side. Uh, I don't think this yield number is really determined yet. And so That'll be an interesting point of discussion when the October report comes out. We get some more information about what actual yields are. So prices, um, USDA really made a big change in their price forecast. Coming into this report a month ago, they were forecasting a 2020 market a year average of $3.10 a bushel. They raised that 40 cents a bushel to 350. Uh, we were expecting a rise. I think that was pretty clear coming into the report, but <clears throat> excuse me, that was a big move. Yes, it was. And really prices are, are now have been fairly, pretty flat since 2014. Uh, you know, when, when the 2020, you know, looking at the August crop report, uh, that 2020 price was down to 310. That was substantially below where we'd been from 2014 to 2019. Now the 2020 price is just in line with where we've been at since 2014. It's been right around 350. Yeah, that's a good point. When the uh, the August report came out, we were referencing the fact that that was going to be the lowest price marketing year average price since uh, the 2006 crop year. 
but you're right. That's put, this puts us right back in that range we've been in for roughly the last uh, oh, five or six years. Um, if you look at the corn pricing structure, and, and these, this is data from, from Friday afternoon, so these prices have changed a little bit since then, but not much. Um, you know, there's kind of a stair step uh, out there. There is a little bit of a premium in the deferred futures contract. So when we were looking at it, uh, Dease was trading in uh, roughly 368, March was a 378, May was a 384, July 388. Um, you know, I think we're maybe just a touch stronger than that here this morning. But uh, I think the key point is there is a little bit of a premium built into those deferred futures contracts, which bodes well for storage returns. The other thing to keep in mind, this is based on some research one of our colleagues, uh, Nathan Thompson here in the department did a while back. You know, seasonally, there's a pretty strong trend for those spreads across those futures contracts to widen as we move through harvest. And in fact, uh, those spreads tend to widen and tend to peak uh, towards the end of harvest. Uh, truthfully, not too much before we move into making that Dease contract the uh, um, kind of roll out of that Dease contract in, in sometime in November. So if you're thinking about storage and you're thinking about pricing, um, the implication would be you'd want to place hedges, even though you might intend to store that corn until, say, March, April, or May, you'd want to place hedges in the nearby, which would be the December contract, and then look at the opportunity to roll those hedges forward into one of the deferred contracts after those spreads widen. And, and the good news is there is some premium in there now. Um, we would expect to see maybe a little more premium show up as you head into that latter stages of, of harvest and maybe get harvest wrapped up. Uh, if you look at basis, and again, this is looking at the crop basis tool in the Center for Commercial Agriculture's website. Uh, basis here in, in Eastern Indiana, uh, Eastern Corn Belt really, uh, running above last year at this time. Uh, but as you look, out just a little bit heading into harvest, we're gonna see those basis levels drop pretty hard and, and probably get back close to the three-year average. Uh, so look for basis as, as the combines start to roll to weaken. But then as you look at it from a longer term perspective, you know, the odds are pretty good. We're gonna see a, a, a pretty typical basis recovery. And just to put that in perspective, if you look at the three-year average for basis computed off of the July futures contract, um, you know, the three-year average has got us going down in, say, October to about minus 50 to minus 55 cents here in kind of central Indiana. Uh, and then as you move through the corn storage marketing year, those basis levels uh, start to approach even money with futures. So that suggests the combination of maybe the spreads widening as we move through harvest and the basis recovery a combination suggests there might be some decent storage returns. And so if you're thinking about storing uh, corn or soybeans, we probably lean towards uh, storing corn. It looks like the corn storage returns might be better than those on, on the soybean side. Michael, let's kind of turn our attention and talk a little bit about the soybean side. Um, soybean yield was reduced by about 1.4 bushels per acre on a national level. That puts it at 51.9. Um, that's just barely below the record set in 2016. But Michael, again, you've taken a look at the state level yields uh, underneath that. Yeah, first of all, the, 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 at 51.9, we're still considerably above trend. And so that's a 
important point. Even with some, you know, uh, crop conditions that aren't as good as 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 they were a month ago, uh, we're still above trend and above trend by quite a bit. Um, looking at the individual states again, Iowa is is the state that saw a large reduction from August to September, but you're also seeing a pretty large reduction uh, in the Western Corn Belt or west of I uh, west of Iowa, uh, Nebraska and Kansas and South Dakota. Uh, both saw declines from August to September from three to four bushels, uh, three to four and a half bushels, actually, uh, looking at looking at including Kansas in that number. And so we're, we're seeing several states with some pretty large reductions in, in yields uh, compared to August. Uh, looking at the eastern Corn Belt, uh, Indiana uh, yields were reduced about a bushel and a half, but we're still looking at record soybean yields in Indiana at 60 bushels per acre. Also, we're looking at a record in Ohio at 56 bushels an acre. Uh, then going to the northern uh, Corn Belt, Minnesota is expecting record yields uh, at 52 bushels. And so again, even though we have some states uh, with deteriorating crop conditions and we have the storm in Iowa, we're still looking at some states that are looking at very strong yields. And that's why the, that's why the U.S. number is above trend. And I think, I think the question mark in a lot of people's minds, Michael, is you know, will they pull that yield number down a month from now? based on the decline in crop condition rate. There certainly is a chance of that. They pulled back Iowa pretty hard, uh, almost seven bushels per acre in one month. That's a big move. Uh, yeah, right. we're getting to talking about the stocks to use. That's going to have implications on, on the stocks to use number in October, November. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I think, and, and if you look at the state yield maps for corn versus soybeans, it's a little different picture. Uh, yes, it is, and particularly the state that really that really stands out in my mind is South Dakota. We were looking at record corn yields in South Dakota, uh, and but the but the, the soybean yields are not that good. And I, I think that just reflects the fact that the deteriorating crop conditions we saw the last several weeks have obviously hit soybeans to a larger degree than than they did corn. Not there has, there has been some moisture move through and maybe alleviate some of the deterioration. So it's going to be interesting to watch the weekly reports come out on the crop condition and uh, see what's happening, whether or not we stabilize or maybe see some recovery. But certainly on some of those later maturing soybeans, there maybe is an opportunity to see some recovery with the moisture that's come through. So I think yields on soybeans are probably more variability, more uncertainty than there is on the corn side. And if you think about it going forward, there's clearly some chance to pull those soybean yields down even more than what we saw on this report. So if you look at the production numbers, you know, it's still a big bump compared to last year. USDA's estimate for the 2020 crop is 4.3 billion bushels. That's up from 3.55 a year ago. And of course, a year ago, heavily influenced by the deteriorating crop conditions we had and, and trouble getting the crop planted. But if you look at that 4.31, that's pretty close to where we were uh, back in the 2018 crop, 4.43 billion bushels, still about, what, 120 million bushels or so below where we were in 2018, um, but still a, a pretty good-sized crop. If you look at um, USDA's estimate for the size of the crop relative to the industry expectations, USDA was maybe a little bit higher than industry expectations. You know, if you look at the spread of, of uh, uh, industry expectations coming in, the range was about just a little above 4.2 billion bushels to a high of about 4.4. 4. 
So on that standpoint, it looks like kind of middle of the road, but there were more people, more analysts expecting numbers below 4.3 billion bushels than there were above. So uh, USDA's number was maybe just a little higher than a lot of folks in the trade were expecting, but, but not a huge difference. And it's really going to depend on the reaction we get to uh, some of this moisture that's moved through here recently and um, you know whether or not that's enough to halt the decline in soybean uh, ratings and conditions these next few weeks, don't you think, Michael? Yeah, I think that's definitely the case. And, and um, you know, unlike corn, there's probably some upside uh, to soybean prices, even though they've strengthened quite a bit in the last few weeks. There's, there's probably still some upside. Yeah, upside to prices because we could see more downside on production, right? Yes, downside in production, upside in prices. So let's take a look at the usage numbers from USDA. Um, USDA did not change their export forecast in September relative to where they were at in August. However, their forecast in August was already pretty optimistic. Um, they were forecasting back in August a 27% increase above 2019. Um, so they stuck with that. I guess that was the fact that they held steady was a, a little bit of a surprise, but not too much given how optimistic they were a month earlier. To put those numbers in perspective, that 2.13 billion bushels compares to 1.68 billion bushels of exports last year um, and 1.75 billion bushels two years ago, and actually gets those export numbers up, not record large, but pretty darn close, pretty close to the 2017 level um, and just a shade under where we were in 2016. So uh, clearly, anticipating a rebound and especially a rebound of exports to China, which has been in the news quite a bit here the last uh, four to six weeks, right? Yeah, and also, and also we go back to something we said earlier. It, 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 is, it is assuming that the world economy is going to be relatively strong uh, compared to what it has been in, in the summer of 2020. It does, and it especially assumes that China is going to be successful yes. in terms of rebuilding their, their livestock herd, especially their swine herd. And China has been um, expanding rapidly. Uh, they've been putting out some pretty substantial subsidies, encouraging some large-scale expansion. It's unclear how quickly that's going to happen, though, in terms of uh, impacting uh, the volume of hogs that are actually being produced, and, and in turn, what, what the soybean consumption levels are going to be. But clearly, USDA is anticipating a pretty good size recovery there. Well, when you look at the combination of pulling back yields on this report, and a, re, a little bit of a reduced carryover from 2019 coming into 2020 because they did pull that carryover number down a bit. Uh, it had a big impact on ending stocks. You look at ending stocks relative to usage coming into this report, uh, I think we were at about 14% forecast for the 2020 crop before this report. Now it's down to 10%. And for me, awful close to that magical 10%. Yeah, that 10% is kind of a line of demarcation for at least me and I think a lot of other people in the industry. When you see ending stocks as a percentage of usage drop below 10%, that's when you create some possibilities for some pop in the market, some, some pop in terms of prices. And we're on the bubble, right? I mean, if yields come down a little more or usage is maybe a little more optimistic than what USDA is, uh, we could easily see that ending stocks come down below 10%. So to put it in perspective, the 2019 ending stocks as a percentage of usage was 15%. And of course, two years ago, we were all the way up to 23%. So 
we're really moving in the right direction in terms of tightening those soybean stocks relative to usage. So that's the good news. Yeah, and, and the contrast at- here between corn and soybeans. Let's just let's just talk a little bit about that. You know, corn's sitting right at 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 fourteen percent, uh, fourteen to fifteen percent in terms of stocks of use. Soybeans down to ten percent. That that probably means that soybeans are going to be relatively profitable this year. But that also has some implications on the relative profitability in twenty twenty one, which we'll talk here. Uh, we'll talk about a little later. Yeah, good good point. Well, in in light of that reduction in the ending stocks. USDA bumped their price forecast for the 2020 marketing year by 90 cents, uh, all the way up to 925. And Michael, I don't know if that's a record. I didn't have a database to check that, but uh, that's certainly the largest one-month increase I can remember in a long, long time. So that's a yes, and it puts change. us quite a bit above where we were in 2018 and 2019. Yeah, I mean, it puts us up in the ballpark of where we were in 2017. 2017, our marketing year average was 9.33. And, you know, the highest marketing year average we've had going back to 2015 is 9.47. So in recent years, that's that's a pretty positive number. And that's, as you pointed out, it's going to reflect, uh, be reflected in those returns uh, for soybean production here uh, in Indiana and, and elsewhere. So... A bit of optimism there with respect to prices. If you look at the market pricing structure, unlike corn, the deferred futures aren't really offering any incentive to store. So the incentive is really going to have to be on the basis side and or expectations for a recovery in futures prices, uh, as opposed to on the corn side, more optimism about the possibility of getting a return from premiums in the futures market on the deferred contracts combined with basis improvements. So, you know, it's really just kind of flat. Uh, uh, when we looked at this Friday afternoon, uh, I think November was at 9.96. Jan was at a 3% cent premium to November. But then when you looked at the deferred contracts, they were essentially flat with November. So no premiums offered in the futures market for soybean storage. Um, and again, from a more predictable standpoint, that would tend to favor storing corn and trying to earn returns out of uh, uh, the premiums in the futures market combined with basis improvement. It's almost consistent with a relatively uh, expectation of a relatively short crop. You know, not a real short crop, but but having perhaps having some issues related to the size of the crop. Yeah, and I and I think it means a lot of the optimism about soybeans is already built in, right? Yes. So, uh, if you look at the basis numbers, the basis numbers here in in early September still well above the three-year average. We're likely to see some weakening of basis, though, as we head into in the harvest, and we'll probably see basis maybe not get all the way back to the three-year average, uh, but we're going to see some weaker basis going forward. And then from that point forward, probably follow a pretty normal pattern, which would, again, looking at basis computed off of the deferred, off of July futures, um, the three-year average has bottomed out um, in the ballpark of about uh, $0.80 cents or so below, and this is in central Indiana. 80 cents or so below futures, and then recovered uh, back up to about minus 25. I'm not convinced we're going to see basis get as negative this fall as as what the three-year average was, but nevertheless, um, still an opportunity for some seasonal recovery in basis. But, you know, if you're going to store soybeans, I think uh, uh, there's probably going to be some optimism about flat price. Uh, And that's, I don't think I would disagree with putting some of your soybeans into storage, anticipating stronger flat prices. Um, 
just be careful about how much how much of your crop you choose to to uh, market in that using that strategy. So, Michael, the other big report that USDA came out with last week was their farm income forecast, and you took a look at that. Yeah, one of the things that they they published as part of the U, uh, the U.S. Net Farm Income Forecast is the updated 2020 estimate of government payments, and they are certainly uh, high uh, relative to where we've been since 1973 and and before that, uh, likely. Uh, the 2020 payment is is the highest uh, we've seen since 1973. Uh, it is higher than the, the relatively large payments we saw in the mid 80s, and also the relatively large payments we saw from 1999 to 2001. Now, there's a lot of different payments included in that estimate of government payments, uh, which is right at about 36, uh, 37 billion, a very large percent of of U.S. net farm income. Uh, There's a lot of payments in there besides ARC PLC, and so that's very important to point out. uh, The CARES Act, uh, people receive payments for for a very wide set of commodities, also uh, to support uh, wages, and so there's there, there's a lot of payments that went into the 2020 number, but nevertheless, nevertheless, we're looking at a very large uh, 2020 government payment to, to production agriculture. Yeah, just to put that in perspective, I think what between four and five billion dollars of that uh, government payments was actually the Paycheck Protection Program. So it had some non-farm program payments included this year that uh, historically we hadn't seen, and that's part of what gave us that big boost. You also took a look, though, at uh, net farm income, um, the percentage of net farm income coming from government payments, and that's really yeah, interesting. The percentage is really large compared to recent years uh, at 36%, and so 36% of, of real net farm income in 2020 is anticipated to come from government payments. That could change if we get some more uh, uh, payments this fall uh, that we're not expecting. Uh, let's put this in perspective of, of what how that compares to uh, historically, since 1973, uh, well, the all-time year in terms of percentage of net farm income derived from government payments is 1983. Looking at that 1973 to 2020 period, about 65% of, of net farm income in 1983 uh, was derived from government payments. That was the pick year, uh, so we saw some relatively large government payments uh, during that particular year. It was also relatively large after 1983, looking at 84 uh, 84, 86, and 87, for example, uh, we were looking at government payments about 40% of net farm income. And then that period, uh, 1999 to 2001, uh, we saw some relatively large government payments. Uh, government payments as a percentage of net farm income during those years was 45%. And so when you, uh, when you look at this as a percentage of net farm income, it's really high in 2020, but we've had other years during the, uh, since 1973 where it's been higher. Yeah, I think that's a good point to make, Michael. It, it's it's a high number or high percentage, but it's not record high. So no, there's, there's been several years where it was a, a, over 40%, and, and again, at 36% in 2020. So you've updated your projections for net returns here on uh, corn and soybeans, and let's take a look at those. Yeah, this is kind of a good news, bad news uh, story. Uh, the good news is, is that we really have raised net farm income uh, projections uh, uh, with, the, with the recent increase in, in corn and soybean prices. Uh, having said that, even with this recent increase in crop prices, net, net farm income per acre is still low. Uh, it's still relatively low compared to uh, what it's been since 2014. 
Uh, it was lower in 2015 and 2017, but we're still at about a break-even, uh, you know, break-even point uh, in terms of net farm income. So the th when I looked at your chart on that, Michael, the first thing that jumped out at me, and I was comparing uh, this chart to the one that you projected back in August, the first thing that jumped out at me is that in August, we thought 2020 um, was going to be in the ballpark of what 2015 was. Yes. And now it looks significantly better than 2015. Yeah, and it was actually worse in 2017. Now it's now it looks better uh, than 2017. And I've used some fairly conservative estimates of yields here because there's still a lot of uncertainty of where the yields are going to finally end up. I've used a, a, a corn yield that's two and a half percent above trend and a soybean yield that's five percent above trend. If you look at the Indiana State numbers, uh, they're they're higher than that. The, the projected yields are higher than that. And so we could see uh, some additional increase as we move into uh, uh, October, November, and we get more, we obtain more information on what the yields are going to look, what the yields look like. Yeah, so it's, um, well, you started off by saying good news, bad news. Uh, I'd say there's more good news on that chart than bad news. Yes. Still relatively low, but it's certainly a lot, a lot better than what we, what we were expecting it earlier this summer. Uh, looking, returning to that uh, uh, comparability between corn and soybean profitability, uh, 2020 looks like it's going to be another good soybean year. Uh, essentially, soybeans have been uh, pretty attractive relative to corn since 2013. There was, a, there was an exception in 2019 where, where corn was relatively more profitable than soybeans, but, but not that much more profitable. Uh, looking ahead, uh, we've recently uh, crunched some budgets for 2021. Soybeans looks relative looks relatively good uh, even in 2021. Yeah, so as I look at the chart and uh, think about the, the numbers that are behind the, the chart, you know, there's no incentive to plant corn on corn. No. That's that's pretty much off the table again. Uh, and I certainly I certainly my expectation would be similar to what I expected last year, uh, more of a 50-50 in Indiana. Yeah, kind of return to the traditional. And, uh, you know, it's it's a lot different. Uh, well, as you pointed out, going back to 2013, we've really only had one year here in Indiana when it looks like corn returns were better than soybean returns, right? Yeah, and what's really remarkable about that period is 17 and 18, soybeans were over $100 uh, per acre more profitable than corn. That's just unprecedented. Uh, and, and so we've had some years since 2013 where soybeans have looked really good. And that's why we went from a situation, you know, coming out of 2012 and 2013, where Indiana had significantly more corn acres than soybeans, to a situation in the last two or three uh, years where the soybean acreage has actually been higher than the corn acreage in Indiana. And, you know, looking at your projection for 2020, I mean, you've got uh, soybean returns above corn buying the ballpark of, what, about $75 an acre? Yes. And, and I don't see that changing too much, but if, if anything, it's going to be more positive towards soybeans. Uh, so seeing a larger difference there, because we talked about that earlier, uh, the fact that uh, there, there's more uncertainty with the soybean yield, and we could there's probably a more likely chance that we're going to see an, an upswing in soybean prices. That would make soybeans look even better in this chart. So the other thing that we get lots of questions on is what's going to take place with respect to cash rents. Yeah, and this is a pretty complicated topic, as you'd expect. 
Uh, one of the things we have to make sure we understand is when we're looking at cash rent, uh, the way to think about that, at least the way I, I talk about this, is compare cash rent to net return to land. Uh, net return to land is the, is the return that's left after we've subtracted all cash and opportunity costs uh, associated with machinery, labor, uh, all the direct costs, uh, all costs except for land. And so that's what we call it, the net return to land. And that gives us an idea, looking at the trends in net return to land, that gives us an idea where, where cash rent uh, may be heading. Uh, going back in time a little bit, uh, ever since 2014, net return to land has been lower than cash rent. That's why we've seen some downward adjust, adjustment in cash rent uh, throughout the state. It's because of that. Uh, now, let's, now let's look at uh, 2019 and 2020. Um, you look at 2018 and 2019, there was not a lot of difference between cash rent and net return to land. Net return to land was lower than cash rent, but the amount was not that big. I mean, we're talking certainly less than $50, um, you know, a net return to land uh, within $50 of cash rent. It's a different situation in 2020. Uh, my projection is that we're looking at a $100 difference between cash rent in West Central Indiana, for example, and net return to land uh, in West Central Indiana. That's a large amount. Uh, if, if that materializes and, and net return to land stays relatively low, that's certainly going to put downward pressure on cash rent moving into 2021 and 2022. The other wild card there, of course, is what do people expect returns to do uh, as we go into 2021 and 2022? If they expect returns to move towards that cash rent, you know, higher net returns in the future, you won't necessarily see a very large adjustment uh, in cash rent the next year. However, when I crunch the numbers, it still looks like net return to land is going to be below cash rent for the next two or three years. Uh, so uh, that's why I continue to think we're going to have some downward pressure on uh, 2021 cash rents. Having said that, we're not looking at a crash of, of, of 2021 cash rents. I would think a, a $10 reduction uh, would be relatively large. And so we're, we're looking at a relatively small reduction or even flat uh, cash rents. It certainly takes off the table upward pressure on cash rents. So as you look at it, Michael, um, you know, your budget suggests a, excuse me, a gap between uh, returns to land and cash rent of about $100 an acre here in 2020. A month ago, you were forecasting a wider gap than that. Yeah, at one time, I was actually expecting the net return to land uh, in 2020 to be $100. That's how much prices have improved here in the last several weeks. And so, so we're certainly in a better situation, but we're still in a situation where, uh, where uh, there's downward pressure on cash rent. So say that again, Michael, the gap has narrowed over the last month by how much? It, it, not the last month, but probably the last two months, $50. Okay. Yeah. That's a big move. And that's, that's, that's a big move. And that's, that's taking us away from uh, seeing, you know, seeing a, a five, 10% reduction to cash rent to something that's smaller. Yeah. And, you know, if you look at the, the data and you've got this uh, put together on the chart that's available on the Center of Commercial Agriculture's website, uh, you know, those cash rents really have been relatively stable going back to 2016, haven't they? Yes. So modest decline, if uh, if anything takes place this fall, but it could be, uh, wouldn't be too surprising to see a number of those cash rents hold steady, actually. 
Yeah, and I, this is not just an Indiana uh, situation. Certainly, if you look at, at Iowa, for example, uh, you know, given that storm, you're probably seeing some downward pressure uh, in the western Corn Belt, in addition to downward pressure here in the eastern Corn Belt. Yeah. Well, that kind of wraps up our discussion for today. So uh, to use the Center for Commercial Agriculture's information, just go to the website, purdue.edu slash commercial ag. Lots of good information out there, including the slide deck that accompanies this uh, presentation. So I'd encourage you to tap into that. Um, if you have a chance, I encourage you to share the Purdue Commercial Ag podcast with your friends and colleagues. And on behalf of my colleague, Michael Langemeyer, and the Purdue University Center for Commercial Agriculture, I'm Jim Minter. Thanks for listening. Thank you.